I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You are listening to Missed Apex Tech Time. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast Tech Time, powered by summers.co.uk and spannersready.com, bringing you motorsport podcasts, news and blogs. Thanks for joining me in the podcasting shed. I'm your host, Spanners Ready. Normally we have Matt Trumpets up alongside me, but since this week we have a Tech Time special with special guest Craig Scarborough, Scarbs F1, Trumpets is taking a back seat and running the show is our very own tech genius, Oh no, it's Matthew Summerfield, Summers F1. How's it going, Matt? Uh, not bad, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, man. You ready to lead us through some tech hell? Do you know, I hear that some people actually enjoy this stuff. Oh, it's a bit crazy, isn't it? I don't know who that could be. Honestly, there are a lot of people who geek out over tech time, so very, very grateful you're here and, and glad we're able to get our special guest on this week. Before you start talking some tech, I just wanted to say it has been an awesome year for Mr. Apex Podcast, and I'm not ready for it to end. As much as I'm looking forward to seeing Hamilton clinch the title in Abu Dhabi against all the odds uh, for us, we're just hitting our peak, we're just getting some momentum just in time for the season to end. So I just want to thank uh, loads of you who have supported us on Patreon and the guys who download. It's exceeded our expectations for the season. Over the winter, we're not going to go every week. We are going to go fortnightly, but we are going to keep you up to some regular content, and I think it should be fun. And now, before the Tech Time stuff gets going, the last thing I want to mention is that Missed Apex Podcast is going to enter a team into the Simply Race Touring Car Championships. The Milton Keynes Simply Race Sim Racing Outfit in Milton Keynes is doing Season 3 of its Touring Car Championships, and we're going to enter two teams, a Missed Apex team and a SpannersReady.com team. That event will be streamed live on YouTube and we're going to make sure we enter some warm-up events as well and you can follow us along with that. Summers, we're not going to do this alone. We've got our two Americans. We've got Vortex Motio. Hello from the Great Northwest. Hello. And Matt, two rumpets. Spanners ready. I like it when you do that. It makes me feel like I'm being introduced on darts. It's good news. 
Summers, <laughs> why don't you bring on our special guest this week? Yeah, and it's uh, last but no means least, and it's Craig Scarborough, as many of you know him as Scarbs F1. He's the uh, technical analyst for Autosport, Autosprint, and also covers some other sports as well as Formula One for those people who like things like electric racing. Um, so, Craig, how's things? Uh, things are going really good. Yeah, having a great year. Um, looking forward to the uh, end of the season, strangely, so that kind of a bit of a rest and uh, start to focus on next year, which is going to be absolutely mad for us techies. Definitely. Sorry, this is unbelievable, Summers. Do you know what? Because we've got such esteemed guests, because we've got such tech knowledge, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a rare thing. I'm going to sit back, relax, and I'm going to actually have a drink <laughs> on the podcast for once. <laughs> you mean you're going to fall to sleep like usual during tech time spanners? But at least I have the alcohol as an excuse. Where are you taking us first, Summers? Well, I thought we'd have a quick look back at the last race first. Um, obviously, the Brazilian Grand Prix was a bit of a monster, weighing in at three hours with the various red flags. And it even gave you, the shortest attention span amongst us, the opportunity to play some Battlefield 1 at one stage. Yeah, positive KDR as well. Right. So <laughs> if we're looking back in Brazil, what do we what do we need? Do we need better wet weather tyres, fellas? What do we think? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I know that Raikkonen was very vocal in his complaints about the wet weather tires, although personally I would kind of equally pin that on the uh, the Ferrari chassis. But we have heard lots and lots and lots of complaints about these tires over the past two years. Every time they've had to get them out, people have not wanted to run them, and they've tried to get off them as soon as possible, which may have contributed to some of the safety car periods as people were already trying to get on enters before Sector 3 was really dry enough for that to happen. Um, now, Reagan has suggested the Bridgestone era wets at an 85 millimeter tread depth were, were, were better than the current 65 millimeters, and that that might also be contributing to their better ability to clear water with the Bridgestones rather than the Pirellis. But that kind of just lays the problem straight at Pirelli's door, don't you think? Um, shouldn't we also consider the fact that back in the Bridgestone era, we had didn't have Park Fermi? Um, something where the, the drivers could ob obviously, uh, or sorry, the engineers could make changes prior to the, the grid. Um, I think that might have some contribution towards it as well. Yeah, actually, I had wanted to ask you about that because I, I noticed that there was a discrepancy with the tread depth, as it were. And I know that, that in the past it been suggested one of the big problems when there's water on, on the track was that the plank itself will aquaplane, not not just not just the tires. And I was wondering, we saw a lot of changes being done in the pits that were permitted under the current red flag rules. Maybe you could uh, talk about some of those and how they help the cars uh, work better in those conditions. I think that's aimed at you, Craig. I was aimed at me. Okay. Um, yeah. So just just to sort of go back on the, the points you raised there, there seems to be a lot of criticism placed at Pirelli's door. And I don't think that's entirely fair because even towards the end of the Bridgestone era, they put away those big monsoon tyres because the FAA's position was, if it's really wet, we're not going to race. And the wets were just simply to get the cars out on the track so they could get back onto winters. So I think, again, it's a little bit of the FIA playing with what they want from the tyres. We've seen this, obviously, in the, the, the dry weather tyres as well as the wets. So I'm sure Brody could, if asked by the FIA, produce a, a perfectly good wet. But... Um, you're right. There is there is an issue with uh, racing in the wet, and the biggest issue it's not 
you know, everyone was saying at the uh, during the red red flag and the safety car start. Is that what these drivers? They're brave enough. If they're not brave enough, they shouldn't be out there because they're the best drivers in the world, and therefore they can run in the wet. And I, I that's just rubbish, crap, really, because yeah. at the end of the day, the problem the drivers have in the wet isn't the lack of grip. It's when you aquaplane. And that is caused, obviously, when the amount of water hitting the tyre on the, the surface of the track is too great, and the tyre is quite literally lifted off of the, the track. Um, the aquaplaning on the plank is still an issue, but it's not as great as it used to be, uh, Matt, in the old days. Now the cars are set up much steeper. There's really only a very small section of plank in touch with the track, and that really helps to um, prevent the aquaplaning of the chassis itself. So that's not so much of an issue. Um, then, obviously, when they're able to uh, get rid of park firm and make changes under red flags, they can increase ride height, as we saw um, during uh, the red flag period there. And that does help things a little bit better. But fundamentally, it's the tyres aren't suited to the surface. And if you've got rivers going across the track of water, no wet tyre, no setup is going to allow you to go through them without aquaplaning, whether you go around a bend or in a straight line, as we saw with Raikkonen. So obviously in 2017, Craig, we're also going to have a, a width increase in the tyres. And it's my understanding that obviously that's going to cause more aquaplaning incident, incident, incidents. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with all of those comments. I mean, I think we've all seen, um, whenever you've driven a road car, if you've got a big, fat, road-tired car and you go out in the wet and there's puddles, it's much worse than if you're racing around in a little old-fashioned Mini or a 2CV because... Just as on snow, the narrower tyre cuts through the, the wet surface or the icy surface in the case of snow and gets through to get the grip. When you've suddenly got tyres that are, what, 24% wider, 60 millimetres wider on average front and rear, it just means you're going to have less pressure on the track and then you're going to uh, have far more aquaplaning. So it, it's going to be a, probably a bigger problem in very wet conditions in 2017. I think the Inters will be a completely different story. Again, I think we'll see the Inters as a, a quite fantastic tyre to span you between partially damp to almost a fully dry track. Is it okay to take a chat room question, Summers? Of course it is. Go for it, Spanners. We are joined by a huge live chat room on YouTube that you can find by going to spannersready.com forward slash live stream and clicking the link to YouTube there. We have Hannah Hassel in the chat room who is asking with regards to the aquaplaning it's still a big issue is there anything that tracks can do because and from a personal note this is me seem to notice they struggled with it more in brazil where they get rivers coming through and i think in china as well had a similar issue with with rivers coming through so what what can the tracks do craig uh, well, the tracks work very hard to make sure drainage is good. And um, as we know, Interlagos was, was resurfaced, which actually helped you know, the flat bits of track or the slightly angled bits of track drain away. The problem you've got, particularly with Interlagos, and you don't really appreciate this from the TV, but it's built on a hillside. Yeah. So the rain will run down the hills. And if there isn't the necessary drainage at the side of the track, it will just run along the track, you know, carried by gravity until um, it finds somewhere else to go. So, yeah, the track should be doing more. But equally, even on the tarmac, when the rain is just falling on that and it's not running across from, from hillsides, um, you will always get rain pooling somewhere on a circuit. You can't make a perfectly cambered, <laughs> perfectly shaped track to, to avoid all aquaplaning. But I think, particularly in the case of Interlagos, I think perhaps more could be done. Um, lots of other tracks cope a little bit better. Again, it depends on their sort of geography locally. I, I mean, it's a stupid question. Obviously, on UK motorways, they have like pitted surfaces so that the water, mm -hmm. you know, goes through. And it's only like the very, um, it's almost like a cross section of 
of the surface is revealed and you get little squares where the water goes underneath it. I don't suppose they can do that on a racetrack because there just wouldn't be enough grip, enough surface grip. Well, yeah, this is partially the problem. Even if you did have a, a quite a, a, a porous track surface, porous. by the time you've got oil and rubber clogging up all of the little gaps between the track, the, the racing line will still become you know, waterlogged and have standing water. So it's quite difficult for a racetrack. At the end of the day, racetracks are really only designed for, you know, full on racing in dry to damp conditions. Once you've got really heavy rain, um, it's you know, they're not really cut out for that. And According to the FIA, neither should the cars be at this stage either. So, you know, I think some of the decision has been made already that the sport doesn't want to race in very wet conditions. And from a safety point of view, I, I tend to agree. Yeah, totally, Craig. Um, I think perhaps we ought to move on now to some of the other news that has come out during this week um, from a technical perspective. My probably uh, spanners will still fall asleep hang on a minute if, a, a bit of news for spanners if this is big dirty news i get to play a bumper big dirty news now i feel like i'm helping on you go summers <laughs> Okay, so James Allison, who obviously left Ferrari uh, a few months ago, has been touted to to be joining many teams, um, none more so than Renault and McLaren, Williams, and now it seems he's been lined up by Mercedes too. Um, Craig, do you have any thoughts on where he might fit into the hierarchy at Mercedes if that were to be the case? Uh, Mercedes would be quite a tricky case, wouldn't it? Because they've already got lots of ex- uh, Formula One technical directors as the sub-technical directors within their hierarchy with Paddy Lowe sitting over the top of them. So I think it would be difficult to see where James would fit in. I think James has certain particular skills, particularly on the aero side. He comes from the, the aero side of the sport. But equally, they have Jeff Willis there at the moment doing that job for them as well. So, you know, I mean, I think any team, they, they love to take lots of heads from other 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 teams because it brings knowledge and experience into the team and then often they worry about the, the, the structure later i can't see james fitting in at mercedes um equally i could see him potentially um fitting in at red bull um particularly if adrian really is going to take a step back and let someone else fully run the uh, the design operation of the team i don't believe that. um Personally, I'd love to see him at Williams. I think that would be a, a fantastic role. I mean, I think also there's a certain romance about him going back to Enstone, but um, I think that the, the, the rumours that I hear is that that's unlikely. But um, maybe he could come back even as a team principal at Williams and uh, give them the boost they need to get them back up and competitive again. Williams sure need aero, don't they, Trumpets? <laughs> yeah, well, Williams needs all the help they can get in a lot of ways. But I personally, if you're going to ask me about Allison, not that you would, but I'm going to answer that question anyway. I see him fitting in very well at Mercedes as a bargaining tactic with Patty Lowe. As I understand that it may be that he's renegotiating his contract toward the future with Toto Wolf, and there could be some disagreement about the numbers. <laughs> yeah, that's... Wow. that's Quite possibly um, could be the case. Um, but equally, you've got to be careful when you play about with these people, particularly someone that's had some recent history like James Allison. You wouldn't want to use uh, someone like him after the 2016 that he's had just, just as a pawn. 
I also think that perhaps we ought to think about another little, little sport or a growing sport that we all follow. Um, and that's something that Mercedes have got inter- interested in of late. Um, they've obviously taken up their opportunity to go into Formula E. And it's my understanding that there might be some connection in that respect and somebody might be moving out of Mercedes' team to take over that operation and bring Allison in. Um, it's just a theory, obviously, but it's a possibility and it would obviously strengthen Mercedes on their Formula E uh, side of things. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we, we know very little about the Mercedes Formula E plans at this stage other than they'll come in for season five in a, about a year and a half's time. Um, the way I would see it is they probably would have maybe not the technical director running that operation, but the, the operation that they require is very much more on the powertrain. And again, someone like Andy Cowell, I couldn't see him being taken wholesale out of the current uh, Mercedes HPP operation uh, to put purely on the electric side. But maybe some of the people in the levels below uh, would be better. Maybe someone even like Aldo Costa, would, who's quite an astute engineer, particularly on the mechanical side and obviously with the experience with Ferrari, with, with Kurz and with the, the, the engine there, maybe he would be a good person to, to pass over. Okay. And... Obviously, this week as well, we've had another strategy group meeting. Um, in terms of the technical side of things, uh, Force India have brought up the use of CFD as a primary aero tool again. And Manor actually, through a proxy, I believe, proposed more technical freedom for a 50% model rather than the full 60% that's available at the moment. OK, on, um, uh, Summers, on behalf of the audience, what were all those things you said? <laughs> <laughs> so is okay, this is so, this the the simulator that does all the hydraulics and stuff as well? No. Oh no, no. We're not talking about that at the minute, Spanners. We're talking about the tools that are used to create the aero devices that we see on the cars. CFDs, computational fluid dynamics. Obviously. And then obviously no, the, yeah. the, the wind tunnel. Um, everybody's seen the pictures of the, the cars inside the wind tunnel, and those are used, both those tools, to create the parts that we see um, full size on the cars. Um, so, yeah, Craig, did you have any th- any thoughts on the movement uh, I, of CFD and, and, and wind tunnel? I mean, I, I think there's the, 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 there's lots and lots of arguments. A lot of people say that CFD is not ready, but I think you could argue that perhaps it is. Uh, maybe not for every team. Obviously, teams have invested huge amounts in their wind tunnels, and certainly the major teams get a fantastic uh, productivity out of their wind tunnel. But what you do find is these midfield teams um, would struggle um, and they don't, you know, they were, some of them weren't even using these restricted hours um, before the restricted hours were brought in to show you how little they were using their wind tunnel. So they could make a huge saving in using CFD only. But equally, uh, as Sauber have proved for the past few years, they can actually generate an income from this wind tunnel that they've got. So the Sauber wind tunnel has been used almost six days a week by Audi for, for God knows how many years in, in their um, WEC program. So Sauber have largely been funded by, <laughs> strange as it is, by Audi's um, LMP1 car effort. So I think there does need to be a bit more flexibility. Um, I think if a team wants to be able to trade completely its wind tunnel hours for CFD hours, I think that should be allowed. I think, as you say, if they want to go to a smaller wind tunnel model, um, then they should get an you know, equal percentage extra hours in the tunnel because as much as these were you know, cost reduction rules aimed to equalize the field, the big teams, you know, they've got the money. They're going to spend the money in making their wind tunnel more productive within the limited number of runs and wind on time that they've got during the week anyway. So why not give some of the smaller teams you know, a bigger advantage and uh, that should equal things up better for them versus the big teams? Can, can see you right. trying to get in there, Matt. 
Uh, yeah, at, at the risk of, of beating the same drum over and over again, um, and yeah. in agreement with what, what, what Scarb said there, we, we know that the wind tunnels can be very profitable because uh, the at the Omega Tau podcast that we all listened to a couple of weeks ago, that was the main driver of their income too, renting out the wind tunnel. But I wanted to ask a further question. I had a look at the regulations, and I didn't see anything that would prevent midfield teams from sharing models in a wind tunnel. And now I know that the models themselves take a lot of time to construct and, and can be expensive. But in, in that interview with the, the head of the Toyota wind tunnel, he said that uh, the models they run in the, in the wind tunnel, only 80 of the parts were made with additive manufacturing in the sense that, that they were changed in order to assess their impact. Do you think it would be possible to also allow the, the part of the model that doesn't change to be shared amongst different teams in the wind tunnel also as a potential cost savings idea? I don't know how much that would save. I mean, the wind tunnel model is, is quite an investment to get the what they call the spine, as, as you say, the bit that sits inside everything that has all the sensors and attaches physically uh, to the wind tunnel measurements. And then you clip the bodywork and the suspension on. I don't know how much you would uh, teams would benefit from sharing one of them, because that immediately says that you're going to get less than 50 percent of the week with um, you know, a model if you were sharing it equally. And I think they would probably want a bit more time in the tunnel than that but again i think that kind of goes to show that there's other ways and ideas that could be discussed um, with the fim with the technical working groups to get a bit more of an equitable mix of wind tunnel time wind tunnel sharing um you know cfd time because everyone will have a slightly different way they want to tackle things so yeah i mean i think that there probably does need to be a big discussion and maybe more of a sliding scale in the regulations than just the uh, the fixed split that they have now Certainly. Um, Spanners, I think you're trying to get in. Is there any news in the chat room or did you want to move on to something else? It helps when my mic is on. I can't believe I give you so much abuse for having your mic on mute and I've gone and done the same thing. Yes, the chat room do have some questions lined up about the regs, which I think is where you're going to next. So I'll save it for then. Okay, perfect. And uh, have you got some affiliate news there as well, Spanners? That's right. Very excited that we have an affiliate partnership with maplins who sell all the electrical goodies that i use on a daily basis i spend half my life in there trying to buy better equipment for uh broadcasting missed apex podcast if you go to spannersready.com during the week we will have some deals from maplins on there it's a great way to support the show as well because once you click on that link to do your shopping on maplins they get a little cookie that tells them that missed apex sent you so you can support the show and get some good deals on maplins Back to you, Summers. Thanks there, Spanners. Um, so if we move on to part two, which is basically more or less uh, a large topic of 2017 and beyond. Um, now, the 2017 regulations, I'm going to nickname them the knee-jerk regulations from now on, um, purely because <laughs> we we were no more than a few races outside of 2014, and it was the teams, Bernie, Jean Tard, anybody who thought that they had an opinion on 2014 quickly came up with a solution that we needed to um, make the cars quicker. We need them five seconds a lap quicker um, because they were using GP2 to compare the cars against. Um, any thoughts on that, guys? 
Yeah, it was a knee-jerk reaction, wasn't it? Because everyone was complaining that basically Kobayashi in his catering was falling behind the GP two times, but they were talking about a team that was really struggling on the back end of the pack. And how quickly did that problem go away? Reasonably quickly. Yeah, well, I did a little bit of research um, this afternoon on the timings um, and used the Spanish Grand Prix as uh, the backdrop to to get the figures because obviously we have both GP2 and Formula One going to that going to that venue, um, and obviously the teams know Barcelona inside out. So if it's one circuit that there should be representative times at, then that's the one that we should be really looking at. Now, um, if we look at 2013 as a benchmark. Um, we've got Nico Rosberg with the quickest lap of 120.718, whereas Charles Peak at the back of the grid was on 125.070, which is a 4.3 second gap. Now, Ericsson in the um, GP2 class was on a 128.706, so he was only 3.6 seconds slower than Peak. Um, now, we moved into 2014, and there's a bit of a, a difference between the timings. So obviously, um, even at the front of the grid, we've gone up by five seconds. Um, Lewis Hamilton is with 125.232. So that's five seconds slower than Nico Rosberg was in the previous season. Um, Kamui Kobayashi was another five seconds down the, the pack. And he was actually slower than Rakelmi was um, during qualifying in GP2. So we can see that there was a quite a big offset in terms of the pace between them. Um, but that has vastly changed in the two the, the, the seasons that have followed. And 2016 saw Lewis Hamilton record a 122 dead, which was only one point something seconds slower than the Q3 time of Rosberg in 2013. So, you know, over a sustained period of time, we get some maturity. And I'm wondering just where are we going with the five seconds? Did we really need that, Craig? That's a lot of numbers. <laughs> That's a lot of numbers. Yeah, I mean, I I remember being at some of those first the first tests and um, those first races in 2014, and all of the teams were in an absolute disarray. Particularly the Renault powered team, obviously Kobayashi and the, the Renault powered Caterham, and yeah, the teams were struggling. You know, it was a very different regulations. Uh, there were different tyres. We've got to remember that GP2 cars at the time were running on far better tyres than the the F1 cars were. And everyone was going, oh, GP2 is too fast. It's all, oh, make GP2 slower. You've just slowed F1 down by cutting the wings and cutting the aero and giving them these really complicated uh, power units for which they were really struggling to get to grips with. And um, in my, well, I mean, I've, I've followed the technical regulations since the sort of the early 80s. I've never known the sport actually say, stop, let's make the cars quicker. They've always tried to rein in speed of the cars because the cars you know, incrementally get faster and faster and it becomes a safety issue. And there's obviously loads of other issues with that as well. So I think this whole rule, this whole rule package was completely ill thought because the only aim was the five seconds. And, uh, you know, that was ridiculous. There's lots of other things Formula One needs to be battling with now other than outright lap times. Yeah, I, I think they could have saved a lot of money by just getting better camera angles. Because let's face right. it, five seconds a lap is not going to be something that we necessarily at home on TV watching are going to see. On Top Gear, we they can't they, see they, it. <laughs> I was going to say, on Top Gear, they sort of put it at a slight angle to make the cars <laughs> look faster as they come through. They could have just done that, saved millions. Where were you in 2014? Yeah, I know. And, and then, of course, then they act all surprised when <laughs> their ideas to slow the sport down actually work. Frankly, if they were going to let them go in a direction, 
I would have liked to have seen them go in a direction of making the cars themselves lighter rather than changing the arrow or anything else because as 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 has been pointed out numerous times as we approach the end of 2016 especially with the engines being opened up so that those who have made poor choices can correct them we're really starting to see some parity and some catching up occur and changing the regulations is not going to help that it's going to spread things back out again so i have a i have a question for craig if i may ken here um and i i was just wondering what would be a better direction or goal for formula one if if trying to make the cars five seconds faster may not be the smartest way to go would working more toward parity or enabling on-track passing what 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 is, from your viewpoint what would be a wise way to go well i mean i think yeah if you ask every fan survey has the uh, the big uh, response question is would you like to see more overtaking and strangely every fan says yes i would <laughs> uh, so i think you know regulations do need to be pointed at how can you make the cars um overtake better perhaps make them look better um, obviously, reducing costs is, is a factor as well. And, you know, as you say, uh, uh, parity is, is something that would be nice to try and engineer into the rules. It's very hard to do when you make a big rule change. But, you know, stability and little evolving steps rather than big knee-jerk jumps from one direction to another are the key things. And, you know, these regulations really forget about everything apart yeah. from a five-second lap um lap time improvement. So yeah, it's not looking great for what we're going to have in 2017. And I think, and, and spoken to lots of designers and technical directors and people in the pit lane that really know this stuff even way better than, than me and Matt can ever claim to. They know what the answers are. They know what they can do to make the following car easier to overtake. I mean, Paddy Lowe was involved in the overtaking working group back in what, 2007, 2008. They knew what was required, but they've kind of FIA have now thrown away all those ideas um, in the search for five seconds. So I think, you know, there, there, there does need to be a lot yeah. more thought put to these regulations. Well, this probably answers a couple of the questions we've had from Twitter, because Alonso Vargas said, why widen the front wing if people want less aero sensitivity for following closely and nigel underscore g seriously don't use underscores in your twitter handle guys it's, it's not clever how do you think the new 2017 aero regs will impact overtaking now craig from a personal point of view i wonder if this is almost a business decision because there's just a huge industry around aero and around the teams if you were to just dump aero completely i mean a lot of people would lose their jobs is that part of it um, uh, probably not. So, so I don't think anyone has actually gone out with that agenda to say, let, let's keep aero. But I think one of the big influences in these whole new rule packages was Red Bull. And if you remember back to sort of 2014, after Red Bull's period of success with the V8 cars, they really had the FIA's ear. And Adrian Newey obviously is someone that lots of people accept um, his opinion. Yeah. And Christian Horner is very good at lobbying as well, as we've seen over the years as well. He's a charming so guy, yeah. were aimed very much at uh, using aero and partially tyres to, to get this lap time gain. And as I say, no thought was given to overtaking. Therefore, when we do look at what they've done for the rules next year, uh, sort of responding to the, 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 t the two questions there, were overtaking is going to be more difficult. I mean, it's, it's certainly not going to be any easier. Um, the problems you're going to have is the cars are going to struggle in the wake of another car still because of the front wing effect. Um, 
cars are, are wider. They, if you think two cars next to each other, there's already 40 centimetres of track have been eaten up by the width of these cars. The cars are going to be slower on the straight, but quicker in the corners, which means braking zones are going to be even shorter, even though the brakes may struggle with the extra weight of these cars next year. Everything is conspiring to make overtaking, if not the same, certainly more difficult. So I think the regulations are going to be a complete failure um, <laughs> if we look at that as one of the goals. But you know, sadly, it wasn't one of the goals for these regs. You seem pretty downbeat about that, Craig. Is this something that sort of bothered well, you I as they've because, developed? You know, again, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm very lucky that I get to speak to these people. And uh, even when these... Fir- that the sort of the initial genesis of these regulations, which was partly a Red Bull philosophy, all the other teams knew that this wasn't the way to go because there was nothing happening with the front wing. There was nothing happening to try and, you know, take the aero load away from other areas. And there's lots of very simple and really good ideas that these guys had that were never listened to and never applied. And the, the regs that we end up with, you know, uh, it gets a bit frustrating. But I think that reflects the whole governance of Formula One at the moment, which is a little bit kind of dysfunctional in that everyone seems to have an opinion, everyone seems to have a vote. And when you have you know, things designed by a committee, you end up with a complete mess. And sorry to keep interrupting you, Summers, but 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 Scarbs just brings technical stuff to life. I don't know don't know why you don't do that. Uh, but Paul Wright in our chat room, <laughs> I'm only joking. You know we love you, That's Summers. Not true. We absolutely love Summers that. here. Honestly, Summers has made Missed Apex podcast, and you've given us the only air of authority we have at all. But Paul Wright was just asking, talking about having good ideas that are being ignored. He's talking about ground effect. So I'll just quickly get your opinion on ground effect because it's something that's mentioned a lot. Is this something they could have brought in? Yes. Again, this was some of the the, uh, solutions put forward was ground effect. And this is kind of harking back to the late 70s, early 80s, when the whole underneath of the car was shaped like a wing. And that makes it much less, so, so we understand, makes it much less sensitive to following another car. It also means that the front of the rear wings are much less influential in giving the car performance. So, you know, back in the 80s, teams didn't run a front wing, they just run a pointy nose and then just a ground effect tunnel under the car. So, yeah, that was one of the directions, but we've ended up again with this kind of uh, committee-based design where we get a much bigger diffuser, which is helping. It will help with the, with your, you know, that is one of the things that will claw some potential overtaking back, but it hasn't gone as far as it could do. Um, there were lots of other things, simplifying the front wing, even ch- putting some veins behind the front wheel um to act like they did back in the sort of the uh what was that probably the late 80s i think they had them on the uh, jps lotus and williams and things to get the front tire wake away from the rest of the car so you didn't have to have such a sensitive front wing so as i say there was lots of ideas punted around but this kind of red bull biased um solution was the one that uh, got got chosen at the end of the day yeah i mean Pat Simmons uh, was on the Motorsport magazine um, podcast mm-hmm. recently again, and obviously he whoa, mentioned whoa. the fact of ground effect and how this was brought about in terms of uh, the regulations and the way that we're, we're heading towards. And the fact that there was so little research done into what these regulations were going, going to be, um, it, it baffles me as to why there wasn't a technical working group set up, um, why there wasn't a decision to be take these rules into 2018 especially with the halo being delayed um it just smacks to me of um typical um all of the teams getting involved the fia getting involved and nobody really taking charge of a situation death um, by committee yeah but basically um it, unfortunately formula one's governance is somewhat broken at times um and, and this is one of those instances 
Yeah, I mean, it makes you wonder that there should be um, a, a highly skilled engineer with lots of F1 experience, perhaps guiding the technical regulations that maybe could set them out rather than the teams deciding. But what person is floating around at the moment that could possibly take that role on? I don't know. <laughs> He's gone who should have that experience? Who, Be that who, who could have worked for Ferrari and Mercedes and Benetton or Red Bull as it is now? And owned his own team as well. And he even has a book out. Did he mention he had a book out? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> You know, I mean, I think as with all this stuff, we often you know, it talk about not just tech, on the technical side of Formula One, but lots of areas. You know, as Matt says, you know, th there's a degree of dysfunctionality and um, it would be good if we could get that sorted. But um, maybe things will be changing as we go around the corner because F1 is definitely going through a bit of a pivotal time at the moment. Yeah, well, I, I kind of wanted to go in that direction just quickly, if I may, because maybe that is the, uh, the little halo um the glass is half full and that we have new ownership apparently that's coming in and they look to have um, we saw a hint of an interesting structure of somebody being a director of competition um, and you you mentioned that which is great scarves of how the the polity the way formula one is run currently um, it just is not functioning well is would a new owner who comes in and wants to make Formula One better, would they have the opportunity or um, to be able to to make the big changes? Yes, I mean, they'll have carte blanche to pretty much do whatever they please. Um, at the end of the day, they're the commercial rights owner and they can really shape the sport via the FIA. And, um, yeah, unfortunately, we don't know very much about quite what Liberty Media are going to be doing with the sport. You know, we've seen... Um, uh, uh, was the guy with the moustache, Chase Carey, um, going around the uh, the paddock, but was being very, you know, uh, trying to avoid any questions or contact about what they may be doing. You would hope that, you know, you see lots of other major sports, like you know, people point to things like the NBA, uh, to American football and to, to other sports that are actually very good at governing um, a, a quite equal and equally very profitable and successful sport. I think some of that does need to come into Formula One, which has been very much run as it has been since the 80s, uh, for, you know, for better or worse. And it's got us to where we are. I think we're now at that disruptive stage where we need to move on. And hopefully Liberty can do that. And, uh, you know, I don't know too much about their background, but, you know, I think they do have the breadth of experience potentially to uh, change the structure for something a bit more modern. Definitely. Um, now, obviously, we've already talked about closing up the fields. And if we'd have kept the regulations in the aero format that we've had over the last few years um it's partly my opinion that the way in which that the sport is heading towards currently with the change of the token system so we're abolishing the token system and there's a waiting uh, kind of situation going on with the power units um mm -hmm. do we think that that might have resolved some of the issues that we might have had in terms of closing up the field and making the racing better that in my opinion is the direction that the sport should have taken yeah i mean i think you know i i wasn't personally a fan of them getting rid of the token system i think it, it, it had a function there and under the new regulations um with what the five eight power units that you get per year someone if you want to put enough money in could literally have a completely brand new power unit every five races which i don't think is necessarily good for the sport but i think everyone is quite careful with the money they're spending so maybe you know getting rid of it and it should allow people like honda to catch up to make those big 
structural changes to the engine that they need. Renault equally need to have a catch up. So in theory, it should close the um, you know the, the the difference between the uh, the teams up. Back I think it was at Monza they said that it was only about three tenths of a second uh, difference between the different power units up and down the grid, which makes you realise quite how close Honda have got now to the other teams. And over the winter, you would hope that everyone would close up to even you know less to maybe you know less than 10 horsepower uh, between the engines. But then you then have to maybe worry, we all talk about opening up the regulations allows the lesser uh, teams or man engine manufacturers to catch up, but it also opens the door for Mercedes to go and completely re-engineer their power unit, which has largely remained the same over these three seasons. So as much as we hope it will close up, equally you got to you know, hope that it doesn't mean that Mercedes take another huge leap ahead of everybody else because they now have carte blanche to do what they want in changing the engine over the winter. Yeah, if they've had the most successful design, I think what you're trying to say is then they know exactly what they can they can make changes in to make it even that much more efficient because really this yeah. is an efficiency formula. But I have a question for you um, because Spanners is not here right now. <laughs> and as one does, I was just casually reading the engine regulations and I came across this little corker, 5.6.8 in the technical regulation. Engine plenum, um, air temperature must be more than 10 degrees centigrade above ambient temperature. And ambient temperature will be taken an hour before the race. And what I want to know is, first of all, to me, number one, that reads like someone has been up to a thing and they do not want that thing to happen, and B, how long before the weather catches them out and you wind up with like another 107% qualifying time fiasco like we had in Budapest. So I, I'm just curious your, your, your take on that. Who's been up to what and, and when's it going to go wrong? Okay. Uh, was that a new regulation for 2017 or is it just something that's in the current engine regs? Uh, it's new for 2017. Okay. I could I could I could easily read you the whole thing as I have it. Oh no, I, I, oh, I, dear I, Lord. I saw it in some notes earlier, <laughs> but I wasn't quite clear where we were going with this. Um yeah, I mean I don't know how anyone could actually get the uh inlet plenum te air temperature down to much less than ten ten degrees above ambient. And what we're talking about here, this is the air that's been compressed by the turbocharger, cooled by the intercoolers in the side pods, and then is the air that's finally fed into the engine mixed with fuel and burns. Um, now, the air that comes out the, the, the compressor on the turbo is very hot, and as much as the um, uh, coolers of intercoolers are very efficient, I, I don't, can't imagine anyone's getting down temperatures that low unless you're starting to play with some very funny liquids in some of these uh, water-to-air, we say use the term water-to-air, it's not necessarily water inside them, um, type of intercoolers, which... Um, Mercedes exclusively run as a Mercedes runner, and all of the Ferrari engine users uh, use this solution as well. So I, I'm not aware of anyone playing clever with this, but clearly it's something that they felt needed to be uh, contained within the regulations so people aren't refrigerating uh, fluids on the car or something like that, which, which on cooling is technically allowed. But I've not, I can see no evidence of that, but maybe someone wanted just to make sure that no one else did it rather than... Um, uh, just because someone's trying to do it. In terms of the, the same sort of regulation applies to things like the fuel uh, in the engine as well. It has to be so many degrees above ambient temperature. The ambient temperature is measured an hour before the race. And I remember, oh, probably about four or five years ago, I think it was Williams at one of the final races got caught out. The, they took a temperature 
and it wasn't the temperature that the FIA later announced in there because the sensor wasn't homologated. There was a big argument. But it's one of these things that common sense tends to prevail. If the temperature changes massively before a race, then the teams will be excused. Um, if the temperature hasn't changed massively before the race and someone is still under that temperature threshold, then, yeah, they will be disqualified for, for good cause. But um, I don't think it's, it's a little story that's probably going to bubble up too far. I believe you've got some Twitter questions for us, Spanners. Well, just the one. We have one from at the F1 Poet. That's a big claim from a Twitter handle. You'd better deliver. Oh, I'm going to check it, it out is. later. It is, isn't it? You should. Yeah, he's very well known. Oh, you know yeah. this gentleman. Excellent, then. He asks, uh, nice. he asks, what do you expect to be the biggest challenge for teams with the new regs next season? And then personally, what I'm most interested in how will drivers need to adapt? Because, Craig, surely if it's five seconds a lap faster, you've got more grip, you've got more aero, that's more G-force. Are we going to see a return to, you know, the super fit regimes like Michael Schumacher, Lewis Hamilton, and, and that being a dominant force once more? Okay, well, to, to, to answer the F1 Poets uh, question first, I think probably, I mean, obviously aero is going to be critical next year and teams are going to bring in bodywork updates you know, between Friday and Saturday, and they're going to bring, bring them to every race. So that's going to be almost an obvious thing that everyone's going to be working on because they're going up a big curve and learning how these new aero packages work. But I think the thing people are maybe not realising is these cars are going to go around the corners far quicker. They're going to be slower on the straight, quicker in the corners, as you say, big G-forces. Um, and that's going to affect the tyres. So they want this five-second lap advantage. But as we know, these Pirelli tyres, as they've run for the past few years don't cope with being pushed around fast corners with lots of energy put through them because they overheat and then they give up their grip. So I think the thing will be is, certainly for the early part of the year, is who's understood how to use the tyres, particularly in race conditions. And, you know, some teams are better at this than others. So people like Force India tend to be very astute to this. Um, Mercedes, you know, after their problems in the, uh, you know, their first years in the sport, back in the, uh, what was that, the 2010 onwards, they had terrible tyre problems, but now they're really on top of it. So they should be good. Red Bull traditionally fail very badly to deal with tyre changes, as do Williams. So I think that's going to be the one thing that's really going to potentially mix up the pack. Even if you've got a great car, it's not using its tyres, you know, it's potentially rubbish. So I think that's the big thing that teams will be focusing on, certainly during testing. Um, and then for your question, in terms yeah. of driver... Um, fitness. Fitness, uh, their ability. I mean, the car's already corner at 5G, which is you know, a ridiculous amount. 6G under braking, that yeah. probably won't go up much. But certainly if you're talking about going up to maybe 6 or more G in cornering, you know, having six people sat on top of you is quite a weight. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And doing that, you know, 13, 20 corners around a, a lap is going to be really tough for the drivers. So they're going to need to build more muscle mass. You know, these cars, uh, already the drivers are trying to lean out their muscle because the weight of the car is so close to the limit that, you know, obviously the driver's part of the car weight, the, you know, the, the total weight as it gets weighed at the end of the race. So the drivers need to be as light as possible. But now the drivers are going to need to have a bit more muscle, particularly in their neck, particularly in their arms, to be able to negotiate you know, these very, very fast cornering forces. But, you know, the drivers, I think the, the drivers are fit enough. Maybe they may not be strong enough because if you see these drivers, I mean, they're all... They're small. Fit. They're small guys, aren't they? Uh, there there yeah. is a mix, but, I mean, you see people like Lewis Hamilton. He looks like he's super lean. He's got a lot of strength training going on. But some of the, the drivers that come through are, are pencil thin. Um, but some, as the chat room has saved the uber technical questions for you, um, some, is it, with the wider tyres, are all the teams going to have to invest in wider tyre blankets. Now, that's not as stupid as it sounds, because did not one team save money by not having tyre blankets a couple of seasons ago? Well, yeah, they're going to have to have new tyre blankets. Maybe they might be able to get their mums to patch them together. I don't know. Uh, But yeah, the wider tyres are going to need wider blankets. It's... On a serious note, though, I know you yeah. thought the wider tyres were a bit of a, a bit of a nothing because lots of people have been looking at these pictures of the wider tyres thinking it's going to give them masses of, of grip, masses of mechanical grip, make them turn at 90 degrees. But, you know, you, you were wondering whether it was worth the effort at all. Well, personally, I don't think it's worth the effort at all. 5% extra man- mechanical grip, effectively, from, from the, the extra width that we got from the tyres. So um, the majority of these regulations for me are more down to the aero side of things than there ever were about the mechanical side of things. Um, so, yeah, it, for me, it's, a, it's a, a bit of a no-no, but, you know, it is what it is with there now. So um, I believe Ken's got a question. Well, yeah, and this is kind of a funny question because I, I want to ask both both you, uh, Summers, and Scarps, this question, because in Scarps, you just touched upon the, on the brakes, and that, um, my understanding is, we have the extra width of the tires, but we have essentially the same diameter brakes, and um, that's going to be uh, maybe a weakness for the cars going forward. And Summers, you had a great article um, that that uh, you were uh, had published on the the shims, I guess it's called that uh, Mercedes had on the side of their thing. And I, um, uh, and one thing that excites me about Mercedes is how they manage the temperature of the tires and the whole wheel and the brakes and the assembly there. What do you think, uh, Summers as, and and Scarbs, as far as next season? Um, clever things we may see to keep the brakes functional all race long. Mm, what do you think about that short question there? <laughs> um, well, I'll go first because obviously Ken mentioned my article. Um, firstly, Ken, the 
diameter of the disc is is the same, but the width has is altered. The maximum width has gone up from twenty eight millimeters to thirty two millimeters. So the FIA have given a little leeway um, in terms of the disc width, so they can do some. Um, something different compared to what they have been doing. Especially, I think that will be um, quite critical in terms of the cooling because the likes of Ferrari have been um, marginal in the past on their cooling and uh, their disc design has a chevron pattern to the, the drill holes in it um, to, so that, to allow them to have five drill holes rather than four. Um, but in terms of the, the Mercedes design that I, I mentioned in that article, yeah, the, what, what they've been looking at is aligning some carbon shims alongside the disc. Um, and it, I think it's more about heat management. We'll learn more about it as um, if that gets taken further into development. Um, but at this stage, it's something that they just wanted to test in free practice sessions this year. Um, I mean, Craig might have some more insights on it um, and I'll, I'll let him take over from here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the brakes, I mean, we were all expecting the regulations to uh, go to much larger wheels to allow potentially larger brakes, but that, that hasn't happened. And as Matt pointed out, you've gone to these thicker discs. Now, this doesn't actually give you any more braking power, so you can't oh. actually slow the car down quicker with a thicker disc uh, in sheer braking power. Um, all it means is that you'll be able to work the brake harder for longer because obviously it, it, the disc wears down on a Formula One car to their carbon discs. Ah. So it's like the brake pad wearing out on your, on your road car. Um, and speaking particularly to the Mercedes engineers, you know, Lewis Hamilton is very hard on the brakes. He's very one of these drivers that really, you know, pushes a lot of pressure into the brakes. And they said well, they were already at earlier this year at the limit of what was possible with the brakes in terms of getting more braking power out of the car. And, you know, it would partly explain why they've been doing this work, as, uh, as Matt said, with these shins that were acting as potentially as a heat soak to try and keep the brake temperatures down to limit wear um, so that they can push the brakes much harder. Because um, the harder you push the brakes, obviously, the greater the temperature. And the trouble is when these discs, these carbon discs get hotter, they wear out much quicker. And it's this wearing out that leads to the problems that we see, particularly with the Haas, unfortunately, with you know, the inconsistency of the Brembo material this year. Yeah. Um, you know, the disc literally just falls to pieces. Um, Brembo were telling me again earlier this year uh, that um, they can't put any more holes in the disc. As, as Matt said, Ferrari have got, uh, I think it's a 1,500-hole disc now. You know, 1,500 tiny little holes. And they said we simply can't make any more holes in it because it structurally it won't cope with less material in it. So, you know, Brembo and Carbon Industry are both working very hard to get this material working. But again, that could be one of the little backstories that starts to crop up next year, particularly if these tyres prove to be as good uh, around fast corners as much as we were expecting. And, you know, as much as I said that braking will be a little bit less next year, um, the extra weight of the cars, I mean, I think that the change in the wheels and the tyres has added several kilos to the car on their own. So brakes will be a little backstory that will run next year and teams will have to work very hard to manage them. Yeah, thanks, Craig. Um, I think at this point we would like to throw it over to Matt and Ken because they have some questions for us. And uh, Craig, we apologise in advance. These two can talk for England. If their questions are irrelevant, please feel free to just say, that's stupid, next. No one will judge you. <laughs> okay. Right. Well, I actually I hate to kick it off because I have a question and the question has to do with the new aero regulations. But while you were talking, I had another question having to do with brakes. Plus, I think there was a Twitter question as well about what brake warming magic 
is or was or potentially might be. Yeah. But what I want, what I was curious about was, and I don't remember the race, but a couple of races ago, uh, there was a whole race that Mercedes ran where they basically said our brakes were on the limit. And mm-hmm. it was interesting to me because it seemed like they purposefully chose of the things that could be on limit, tires, et cetera, and so on, that they chose the brakes. Singapore. As this is the system. Was it Singapore? I think That's so, what yeah. I was thinking it was. And the question. Was it not Mexico? I thought it was the Mexico race because of the altitude that they were struggling with cooling. Uh, yes, I mean, you know, the, on, the, on the brake cooling question, you know, initially, um, as we were explaining, uh, they weren't, it, it, it's a, it depends on the language Mercedes use. And we look, from, from us hearing the radio messages, it sounded like they were coping with a problem. Uh, Mercedes' point of view is that they were managing the brakes. They knew what they had to do to run as fast as possible, but still keep those discs from overheating from wearing out over the race distance. And this was just all really good engineering management from the pit wall by the guys in the garage and the guys back at Brackley at the uh, race control to actually just manage this. And it gets frustrating for a driver that you can't push all the time on a set of brakes, but equally you can't push all the time on a set of um, tyres, you can't push all the time on an engine, or you can't burn fuel all the time. It's you know, Part of a driver's skill is managing the car through the race. I think people have forgotten that in the modern era. If you remember going back to, um, you know, the 60s, 70s and 80s, a driver that was very good at controlling the gearbox and not wearing the gearbox out was a driver that finished more races. So it's all part of a driver's skill. I think we we do forget that to a degree. But um, yeah, they're right on the limit of what's possible with the, the size of disc they've got, with the calipers that they're allowed to run with the cooling that they can afford to, to run on the, uh, the brakes without starting to slow the car down on the straight. So it is a real balancing act for them. And, um, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's tough. And Mercedes being the fastest, you know, it always seems to be the fastest team suffer the most. And we saw Red Bull back, you know, back in the day struggling with tyres more than other people because they were pushing them harder. Uh, but, so that's, you know, that's, that's the, a good problem to have because you're quick. Yeah, but isn't that a choice from Mercedes? Because from my understanding, they could have had more airflow going through the brakes to help with overheating but that would cost them in time so they've made the choice to save tenths to and then risked the brakes there's probably someone at brackley with a massive spreadsheet with loads of factors in it it's like what is the quickest way for us to run this race we've got to remember that typically mercedes go out get the front row and assuming their starts are okay, will pull away and run the race under their own control so they can pretty much dictate the pace so they will say you know, how much is extra cooling going to slow us down? How much is uh, hot brakes going to slow us down? And they work out the, the perfect uh, balance, and that's what they run to, and that's exactly what they did in, as I said, I think it was Mexico, um, but I'm, 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 I stand to be corrected on the, that one. The chat room and is saying they, that it's they, Singapore, Craig. They're, they're there to get the win. Yeah, we defer to the chat room. They're saying it's Singapore. We don't like to answer. We don't like to argue with them too much. Yeah, it it all blurs into a distance for me with races. Um, I think the other question was break warming magic, wasn't it? That was a Twitter question. And that came from at Matt Kai, K-A-I. That's not not Matt Summerfield's pseudonym, is it? It's not. (laughs) No, nor is it mine. At Snogglebear, that's his pseudonym. This, yeah, this is this is something that, that Mercedes have run, um, and, and other teams do in different ways. But we tend to hear it much more with with, with Mercedes. And at various points during the race, that you want to uh, warm up the brakes, particularly the rear brakes that don't get used much with the energy recovery. 
And equally, after safety periods, you find that the rear tyres can get quite cold as well. So by using the brake magic uh, paddle or button, I think whatever it's setting it is on the Mercedes, that basically means it recovers less energy into the ERS under braking, which means the rear brakes work a lot harder, which gets them hotter much quicker. And that heat can then equally pass through the wheel into the tyre to give you more rear tyre temperature. So often during safety car periods, you'll hear the engineer suggest to the drivers to go brake warming magic to make sure that the rear brakes and the rear tyres are up to temperature for the restart. And this is a problem, much like the more you test, the more you learn, the more I hear you talk, just the more questions I now have. <laughs> and, and, and we heard we heard in Brazil, we heard Rosberg hitting up his engineer for Hamilton's brake bias setup. And I just was curious, Boom. was that specifically, because we know Rosberg in the past has had issues getting his tires hot enough when, when, mm -hmm. when, the, when the pavement is damp or wet. Was that him hitting up his engineer for brake by setup to warm up the tires on the way to the grid, or was that actually for like lap one and the start? Do you think? Uh, I must say I didn't. I didn't hear that that radio call, so um, I'll, I'll have to think of it off the top of my head a little bit here. Um, yeah, I mean Rosberg uh, is very much a driver that will grab every bit of information that he can. He can sort of manage lots of stuff in his head while he's racing. Um, there's other times when he's racing when everything gets a bit too much for him, but that's a, another question. Um, wheel so, to yeah, wheel. So it probably was how best to warm up the tyres and what was going to be happening into that first corner, because obviously the brake bias that the, the, the drivers run really affects that key braking. Probably of the entire race, the most important thing is that run into the first corner. Um, so it's probably probably related to that, but uh, I, I, I didn't actually catch that at the time. Matt, do you have any background on that? It was basically uh, during the red flag period, um, Rosberg intimated that he wanted to know what settings Hamilton had in terms of his brake bias. Um, mm -hmm. As you say, it was just an information fact-finding mission yeah. from Ros for Rosberg as far as we could tell. Yeah. Um, he just wanted to know what Hamilton had his <laughs> head to. From, from a fan yeah. point of view, though, it's it didn't sound good. It sounded <laughs> like Rosberg was asking to rip off uh, their settings. Obviously, we live in an era where in Mercedes they say there's a free passage of information, and perhaps it was a bit of cheeky sensationalism by whoever decides which radio messages are put out, but it really sounded like Rosberg was like, oh, my goodness, I don't know what's happening. Please tell me how to do my brakes. I'm sure it wasn't that. Yeah, no, no, knowing the two drivers, it's much more likely to be um, Rosberg trying to start, understand what Hamilton was doing rather than so that he could copy him, because I think Rosberg has his own ideas. I think he was just going for a bit of performance advantage by just trying to get into Lewis's head and understand what he might be doing. OK, again, though, for, for clarity, it did sound bad because what he said was, no, 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 hang on. Let, let, let me, let me, he yeah. said, what, what is, was, is Hamilton doing? And then he said, is there any reason we can't do that? And then the, awkward, the engineer sort of awkwardly went, well, I guess so. Uh, but, but like I say, we're, we're lacking a lot of the background and uh, we know there's a delay on those messages. It could definitely have been uh, put there to generate some, 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 some chat just as I'm doing now, Matt. Like almost any Vettel radio call, personally. I just don't understand what we're doing here. What are we doing here? This is unbelievable. So I, I want to jump in with a with a question, and it's an arrow question, and it's a general design type of question, Scarbs, that um, I'm hoping you might be able to, to shed some light on. I'm sure you've been asked this before, but I was 
there, we have a diversity of rake angles in Formula One these days, and um, which is which is great. We don't have a lot of diversity overall. Cars tend to look a lot alike in many ways. So um, I was kind of curious as to, I mean, we have the two most successful teams, very different attack angles on their rake and um i was wondering what uh what is the advantage of running that high rake angle that we see red bull do and and what's the disadvantage of running that high rake angle is that something we know yeah i mean it's it's all kind of standard race car stuff it's not even formula one stuff to, to, to uh, some respects you'll see formula fords and lesser category uh, cars doing very much the same thing as you say, Red Bull run a lot of rakes, so their rear ride height is much higher than the ride height at the front wing. So the whole car is kind of tipped this way. Um, a few years ago, rear ride height may only have been 30, 40 uh, millimetres. Red Bull now have got about maybe 150 millimetres, 15 centimetres of clear air under the back axle of the car, which is a huge amount. And when you see the car on track, typically from behind, you can see completely underneath the car, which seems really odd because for so many years they've tried to hide their diffusers and now they're kind of jacked up so that we can see them. And this is a response to the size of the diffuser that the cars currently run. It's only it's very low. It's only 12 and a half centimetres tall. And if you can rake up the entire car, effectively the diffuser gets bigger at the back. You get the whole underfloor of the car starts to form the diffuser as well. The other benefit is the front wing gets closer to the ground. So that starts to run in ground effect makes the front wing much more efficient, which means you can turn much more of the front wing performance over to airflow control than just create downforce to balance the back of the car. So overall, it just gives you more downforce. So if you can get it to work, it's great. So it's one way of creating downforce with very little drag, which is all the designers want. The problem that you have with this is to get it to work, first of all, you have to have a front wing that's works close to the ground without being too sensitive, without stalling, without suddenly creating lots of downforce and losing it and making the car suddenly feel uh, really sensitive. Equally, having the back of the car much higher means you've got these big open sides at the side of the car. And remember back to the, we talk about the wing cars, the ground effect cars of the 70s and 80s. They had a big skirt there to stop the air getting in and losing all of this great low pressure under the car. You can't have these skirts now. So the teams have to divert other air flows and vortices along the side of the car to stop the air being pulled underneath. And that's a really tricky thing to do across, you know, all the different attitudes the car will take around the track. And then lastly, when you've got, if you told any F1 designer, can you please lift your gearbox and differential up by 15 centimeters? For aero reasons, every designer would go, you're mad. <laughs> Think of the center of gravity. Think of all of the other oh. impacts that it has on suspension geometry and all of this. So, but, but Craig, who wins? Who wins in the department? Like, is the aero department like senior? Like, the Navy's the senior service? Does everyone bow down to aero? It's, it's surprisingly democratic, largely, because each of them will come into the car design model and say, if we do this, we can get so many tenths per lap of performance. And then the gearbox guys will go, yeah, but if you do that, then you're going to lose so many tents in mechanical grip because of the compromised suspension, because of the center of gravity height, because of all the other things we have to do. So it all gets balanced off and the people that win are the people that win the most at lap time. So yeah, it's entirely fair. Invariably it's aero. Invero, aero gives you far more lap time than virtually any other factor that your that a designer is able to change. So it tends to be that way. 
So what you see is people like Forcinger and McLaren spent years now trying to get this to work, and it's only now that they're starting to get it to work. Um, whereas Mercedes don't run much rake, as you say. Their car is much lower at the rear end. It's uh, you know, much flatter to the track. And what we see, when you actually look at the detail, and actually a lot of these cars often look very similar when we look at them from the outside. When you actually look at the Mercedes, in contrast to everyone else with its short wheelbase and this really serrated, aggressive aero, they've got a completely different way of working the aero on the car. And that works for them. So if it's given them downforce for the, the drag lever that they're looking for, then they'll run that. They're happy with it. So um, they're, they're, there's no winner or loser. It's what works for you. And Mercedes have found a way and everyone else is going high rake. You would wonder what what potentially could be the benefit for Mercedes if they could get rake to work for them with no loss in other areas. Um, it's kind of worrying, really, with the pace it could potentially provide them, but they, they don't feel it's necessary. Right. I still have to put a pen in my question about Arrow because oh, yes. the chat room is is dying to know about the long wheelbase Red Bull that people have been talking about. OK, so there's there were lots of rumors started by the German press, which tend to have a very good line still into Red Bull, even now that um, Vettel has departed the team. And the, the rumor is suggests that Red Bull are going to run a very long wheelbase car and not so much that they'll run uh, a long engine and gearbox, which has been the, 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 the sort of the fashion for the past few years, but to basically move the front wheels away from the driver and the cockpit opening. And the reason they want to do this is the regulations next year, aside from widening the wheels, widening the cars, changing the shape of the front and the rear wings and this big diffuser, is they've opened up all the bodywork alongside the front of the car, basically where your driver's legs are, so the side of that and underneath that has been opened up for bodywork. Now, this was all taken away back in 2009 because teams were going absolutely mad with barge boards and flicks and bits of bodywork sticking out to the point where the driver could barely get out of the car without stepping on loads of aero devices and breaking it all. Um, so oddly, this, has been, this area has been reopened and the amount of space you get for this area is related to where the front wheels are in relation to the cockpit. So if you stretch them apart, you end up with a much longer wheelbase car, but you get more space to put loads of bits of clever bodywork in the barge bore area, so we call it, and the back wing underneath. So that's where that's coming from. And yet it makes some sense. Um, you know, we've seen some teams run very long wheelbases. They're about three and a half metres now, which is ridiculous by any vehicle other than perhaps a stretch limo. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a direction some teams could take. But Simply having more space doesn't mean that you're doing a better job with the bodywork in that area. Right. And I'm sure Patrick Daly, who came up with that question, will be glad to hear the answer. And, and he's got a follow up. Uh, will Red Bull be the only team? And, and what would be the disadvantages uh, conversantly? Well, I mean, a longer car tends to weigh more. That's a sort of a, a basic truism. Not an awful lot more because the, the chassis in that area is, well, it, it's thick. It's not very heavy. So that would work. Um but it's all about how you want to get the air to flow around your car. Now, in recent years, even going back to sort of you know the late 80s and the 90s, the longer the wheelbase car you've got, the more space you've got for bodywork, the easier you get to get the flow around the car. Um, but what, as we've seen, as I sort of mentioned earlier, is Mercedes have squashed their car, but used really aggressive um, bodywork to get the air to move around very rapidly around the car. So it's you know it's horses for courses. It's what other teams may want to do. But yeah, I think overall teams may want to elongate that area of the car just to give them some options because we're going to see that bodywork changing on a race-by-race -race basis. 
Now, do you think, is that part of that, uh, in, in, you were recently with Peter Windsor, and you mentioned something really interesting there about uh, this new regulation, uh, 2017 regulations is going to have a lot of drag. And mm -hmm. I was kind of curious as for, for designers, if they're going to try to pull drag away um, out of their design and make them less draggy, uh, would that be an area then... And is that the so-called Y250 area that you were just describing under the nose? or Exactly. What, that. what areas are they going to be looking at to, to um, pull drag out of their designs? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, the basic things every aero designer does with, the, with an F1 car is they want the rear aero to work as efficiently as they can. Now, you can't cover the wheels up, and the wheels are the thing that really wreck your rear aero. So what teams have been doing is using all of that shape around the front wing to try and push the front tire wake away from the back of the car. So the back of the car's aero works better. You run less wing and you suddenly get less drag, but the same downforce. Everybody's happy. Um, but in doing this detail work with the front wing, you're pushing air out around the front of the tires, especially. And this effectively makes that the car's frontal area wider. It adds drag, even though the effect downstream reduces drag much more. In doing that stuff around the front of the car, it adds a bit of its own local drag. So if you can get rid of that, it's good. And what's happened this year, as you settle for next year, as you say, this area around the front of the chassis, under the raised bit of the nose, the barge boards and all of this, these can now be much more powerful. So it's better for the teams to work this area to push the front tire wake away from the car um, with them, because that effectively keeps the, you know, the, the aerodynamic profile of the car much more within the wheelbase rather than trying to push the air outside around the car. So we've already seen McLaren on a very straight-edged front wing. We've seen uh, Mercedes with this kind of half-slotted front wing, again, trying to stop this outwash effect. And we're going to see, yeah, and Ferrari have tried about three back wings in the past five or six races. So they're looking at this area under the car quite closely as well. So we will see a slight change in emphasis. So the front wings will become slightly less complicated, but this barge board area, this Y250 area, as you call it, will become much more influential because that lowers the drag of the car overall, both by knocking off this outwash effects at the front wing and still getting the rear aero to work properly. So, yeah, so that's going to be one of the one of the key directions for next season. OK, Summers, I just want to apologise to the recording there because my windows went absolutely nuts and did a few annoying beeps over Craig's interesting answer. Uh, Summers, being aware of the time and thanking Craig for being extremely generous with his time so far, uh, can we sort of narrow it down to a couple of last tech questions and then I'd love to find out what everyone thinks is going to happen for the season decider in Abu Dhabi. The correct answer is Lewis Hamilton is going to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Bear that in mind. There will be points awarded. Summers over to you. Well, I think Matt's been trying to get him for a little while, so I let let him have a uh, have a go at it. Right now, this is sort of a complicated question, but oh, in looking over the 2017 regulations and looking at uh, some renderings of the 2017 cars, it occurred to me after watching Brazil that it might now be possible where it didn't really seem possible before that if you had a car that had an off, a spinning off, that the, with the height of the rear wing being lowered and with an overhang existing, it might be possible that the rear wing could occupy the volume of a driver's helmet, an oncoming driver's helmet. Ooh. And I know 
um, or I'd had the thought that maybe that might have been behind the big push towards getting the Halo instituted for 2017. Although certainly, as we saw at Macau, with a F3 driver coming up over the top and the wheel almost landing dead in the cockpit, there are plenty of other reasons for it. And I was just curious if you'd had any thoughts about that or if you knew if anyone involved with the coming up with these regulations had had any thoughts about it. I have to say, Craig, my instinct is that surely a driver's helmet could handle hitting a rear wing. They don't look like lethal devices. Am I, am I wrong? Um, well, I think about how strong a rear wing needs to be. It's handling uh, probably a ton, a couple of tons of pressure at top speed. So it has to be strong. You could stand on it and it won't wobble. Let's put it that way. So you wouldn't want one of them to hit you at any kind of speed, uh, helmet or not, because even if it doesn't actually you know, breach the helmet, it's going to push your head back um, right. quite a force into the headrest. Um, I've got to say, um, Matt, I hadn't actually thought of that, that possibility, but you know, there's so many sticky out bits and so many potential things that could strike a driver's head. I, didn't, I don't think the change in rear wing height is necessarily anything that was driving the halo. I think the halo had a, a, an energy, a direction of its own to be introduced, and I think it's a, a great shame it's not coming in for next year. But, um, you know, as much as it's a compromised and it's a slightly flawed solution, um, I, I still think the halo is, is critical that you know, we protect these drivers' heads from, you know, small and large objects potentially coming into the cockpit because um, that's where all, all, all the incidents have been recently. I, I haven't seen the clip of the uh, the Macau incident, but I've heard lots of comments about it. So, yeah, hopefully, you know, driver head protection will start to filter down from Formula 1 to the lower category quite soon after 2018. Craig, it's heartening to hear you speak like that about safety because there's a lot of people have the attitude, oh no, we need it to be critically dangerous in order to enjoy it. You know, I I hope we've moved past the Roman Colosseum style of entertainment. So I take it you wouldn't be opposed to increasing safety. I mean, years ago, the hands device would have been seen as awfully restrictive and now it's completely normal to have uh, things up above the driver's shoulders. So if this eventually turns into a closed cockpit scenario are you upset i'm not because you've got the open wheels still to me that's what makes f1's racing as it is yeah i mean i don't think anything has to be sacrosanct in formula one at the end of the day it has to move with the times and and it has done over over many decades and uh, i think safety is something that still needs to be pushed ahead i remember um, it was just after I first started to get quite close to Formula One with a hands device and Barrichello was mowing. I can't race with this. I won't be able to turn my head. I won't be able to do this. And <laughs> same with the, the cockpit padding. And I know when helmets and goggles were mandated uh, that the drivers hated them as well. And the same with seatbelts. Uh, there, there's a story of one, I think it was a racing driver rather than a motorbike rider, that when goggles were mandated, he wore goggles but with no lens in them. Um, so that he met the rules, but felt that, you know, for some reason, something protecting his eyes was a bad thing. It's unmanly. Um, and yet, yeah, there is this bravado element to, yeah. to, to F1, and to a lot of F1 fans, you know, it has to, be, as you say, be morbidly dangerous. We want to see people die and blood and all no. this stuff. I don't think that's the case. I, I think we want to see massive accidents and the driver walk away and wave to the crowd as he as he goes on his way. That's what we all love to see, which I think, in my opinion. No, no, I mean... And I think, you know, Canopies um, and you know more structure around the driver's head could be a positive thing. We don't see much of the driver at the moment, and the current uh, cockpit camera looks over the back of the driver's head and doesn't really tell us much apart from the top of the steering wheel and whatever sticker he's put on his helmet. Why not put a camera facing back down into the cockpit from the halo device? 
you can see the driver actually almost in this, this angle actually driving. I mean, I think that would be far more interesting from a TV perspective. Admittedly, fans at the side of the track might suffer, <laughs> but you know, equally, Formula One has never really done a lot to you know, make drivers' helmets distinct and the colour schemes and the numbering and other aspects of the car's colour scheme distinct from one to the other. So I, I, I don't see that there's a loss there. There was a fantastic technology where from inside a car, they had cameras on the underside of the car and it could appear to the driver that there was no bottom so you could see the road in real time. So, that, you know, who knows? In a couple of years' time, you might have little video screens on the side of the, the driver's cockpit showing you yes. what's going on inside. Anyway, sorry, Summers, hijacking you once more. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, talking about people watching things, Lewis Hamilton again in Brazil was saying that he was watching the, the other guys going around the track. Too cool for school. <laughs> Uh, Matt, have you got any uh, further questions or Ken in regards to 2017? Mm, I think I'm I'm good actually. I uh, nothing comes to mind. Okay, let's uh, trumpets have might a look be at dying to get his waving away. <laughs> yeah, well, I do. You know, as one does, I'm casually reading the regulations, and and and, and you know, I know everybody just you know, every other day or so opens up those technical regulations and just reads them for that sense of comfort and joy that they All tend the to bring. But one of the things that really struck me, and particularly with regards to the power unit, was the fact that all of a sudden, a lot of things were being defined specifically by weight. The MGUK and the H were being mm-hmm. defined by weight. Um, we had some diameters, crankshaft diameters and uh, also with regards to the uh, the pistons and connecting rods and the crankshaft assembly and i just wonder much as i did with the engine plenum i mean is there something going on or has there been a thing going on or is there a thing that some team is worried about about to be going on that we're looking at here or is this just like standard whenever these sorts of uh, rule changes happen yeah, I mean, I think when the, when they sat down to write the uh, 2014 power unit regulations, which obviously is new 1.6 litre hybrid units, uh, one of the things that the FAA really tried to do was to try and prevent anyone going off at a real tangent with engine design. And they wanted the engines to be almost as interchangeable as possible between chassis, which in a practical sense is ridiculous, but you know, mounting points and things uh, were, uh, were all standardised. And as you say, you know, even down to the uh, the bore sizes, the bore spacing, you know, valve size, everything got specified. And really, as much as we've seen a huge difference between the engines, uh, if you started to strip them down, they would really be kind of identical pieces of uh, uh, kit because so much of the dimensions are actually specified in the rules. Um, you're right. Some of the other dimensions have now been specified. I think, as you say, you think some of the MGU stuff has changed. And I think as they've learned what people are doing with the regulations and compared with maybe the, the aero in chassis and sporting side, I think the engine side actually as a group tend to work quite well together um, because you know, the, the churn of technology is a little bit slower uh, compared with other aspects of the sport. And I think they're just trying to you know, put some good practice in place that you know, this, bat, this disruption of the um, uh, token system doesn't make someone suddenly make you know really tiny components and starts spending inordinate amounts of money on one particular area of the engine uh, compared with others. But I, yeah, as much as there is some very clever stuff going on with the engines and there's some real differences between the uh, manufacturers and some very clever stuff that they would never tell you about. And there's obviously lots that you know 
even some of us more in the know don't know about. I don't think there's anything massively untoward going on with the uh, engine development um, between the four manufacturers at the moment. I think it's just the way the rules, rules are worded and they're just trying to contain things. And that's what someone would say if they were part of the conspiracy. Oh, we do love a good conspiracy on this Apex podcast. Just a couple of listener emails. Um, Further to your point, Matt, about reading through regulations, you've obviously rubbed off on me because I have been reading the regulations on overtaking. So just to answer an email from Rulesmonger, who emailed at spannersready at gmail.com. Love your emails. I do make an effort to answer every single one, even if sometimes it's a bit garbled because it's late at night. Uh, But he's asking, why is there the constant discussion about being out of place in overtaking situations. The rules clearly state that if you have an opponent with a significant portion of the car alongside you, you must leave room. Now, that is a good point, but I think that if you read the regulations, which Matt and Ken, they rubbed off on me, I do now read them, that only applies on a straight you have to leave a car's width. Also, if you've made one move, the one move people always talk about, if you then come back after your one move to resume your racing line, you must then leave a car's width. So I think that's the only place it applies because obviously I was whinging about there being no specific rules in the corners for overtaking. Also, an email from Kevin Duran. Thank you, long-time listener and Patreon member here. He says he had a random thought. There is another F1 podcast. Really? I think I would have. I think I would have heard about it if there was. I don't think there is. But they do show notes where you can have all the handy links of all the things you were talking about uh, as a reference point. And whilst I appreciate that would be a handy thing, Kevin Duran, uh, we will work towards that next season. Maybe we could get a volunteer from one of the other the other chaps on the panel to do that. Um, I would say that I can't be bothered. Would you judge me on that? But we'll, we'll see. I'll ask Ken or Matt or Catman if they'd like to put together show notes with links and stuff like that. Guys, if we've got a little bit of time, I would love to find out what you think is going to happen next week before we round off the show. Regardless of all this tech talk, there is some actual racy racing car stuff happening on the track. And as we know, it is quite critical next race because this decides the championship. There are a few permutations, but basically, if Nico Rosberg finishes on the podium, he is the 2016 world champion. If Lewis Hamilton DNFs in any way, he's obviously out of the game and there's a million mathematical computations I'm not going to get into right now but basically we need something bad to happen to Nico Rosberg and by we I mean good true British motorsport fans that want Lewis Hamilton to win so what I'd like to get from my panel here is their predictions on what will happen in Abu Dhabi it doesn't have to be who's going to win Matt Trumpets what is going to happen in the final round of the 2016 F1 World Championship I'm going to predict that it won't rain I hate you. <laughs> That's true, because to be honest, no, but there, is, there is a serious point around that, which is rain would be the only thing that would really bring the Red Bulls into it with their extra downforce, like we saw in Brazil. It seems so likely, uh, Trumpets, that it's going to be a Mercedes 1-2. If nothing goes wrong, it's a Mercedes 1-2, and it doesn't matter which order it goes in, that's a Nico Rosberg championship. Absolutely. All right, let's go to Ken. Give me a prediction. What's going to happen in Abu Dhabi? Well, okay. So the big, brave prediction, of course, is Mercedes 1-2. That's um, pretty darn radical of me. But, yeah. um, and I, I'm going to say that uh, Red Bull 
uh, is going to show that same strength that they've had, and this time it's going to be Danny Rick uh, that will be on the podium. Cool. Summers, what's going to happen in the desert? Well, I think the the only people that hold a candle to Mercedes, if Mercedes' reliability is fine, is Red Bull. So I can't see both Red Bulls splitting the two Mercedes um, in terms of what is actually needed for Hamilton to take uh, the championship again. So, you know, we're down to the, the factors of reliability, unfortunately. And I'm sure the Hamilton fans out there will think it just That's everyone. Craig, are you um, a Hamilton fan? We forgot to vet this before you came on. Are you a Lewis Hamilton supporter? Is it a true Brit? I don't want to sort of bias your answer in any way with that question. Uh, well, to be honest, I don't don't give a monkey's who wins the championship because it, it doesn't make any difference to me. I don't follow the drivers individually. I don't really support one over the other. Um, I think, you know, the, the safe, if the safe money is that Rosberg would just follow Hamilton wherever he goes over the weekend and uh, wins the championship... 2016 hasn't been like that, has it? Let's remember all of the weird things that have happened to us in the uh, the UK and America over the past uh, 11 months. So I'm going to go with Hamilton will win the race, followed by two Red Bulls, and somehow Rosberg um, loses it all at the last minute and uh, loses the championship. Not because of uh, any great desire for one driver to win over the other. I just think it's the most unlikely thing that would happen. And then perhaps maybe both Mercedes get disqualified from the season <laughs> no. and Daniel Ricciardo gets made world champion. I think that's probably the most likely thing that would happen, surely, in 2016. With the tech, with the tech regs then for 2017, do you, do you fancy Red Bull really being title contenders next season and it being, you know, Max and, and Danny Rick up there for the title? Well, I mean, I predicted that with Ferrari and Mercedes this year, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit wary of predictions. But yeah, <laughs> all of the signs are with just a chassis regulation change that Red Bull should really close up to um, Mercedes. The Renault engine has been improving. It's not encumbered by the token system. And uh, as long as the tyres are OK, I, I think it should be um, at least a four-way fight for the championship through most of next year. That that would be amazing. I mean, we've been robbed of that the last few years. It would like a bit of an open team competition rather than inter-team competition. And my prediction is, my prediction is, for the final round of the 2016 season, Lewis Hamilton to win, and there to be a mysterious sticky substance on Nico Rosberg's steering column that once again thwarts him and puts him into fourth place. Uh, Craig, you have been absolutely fantastic. This has been a delight. And once again, you were very generous with your time on e-radio show. uh, And we're, we're delighted you've done it again on Missed Apex. We hope you come back soon. I will do. Thanks very much, guys. Uh, Where can people find you? Uh, Obvious place, Twitter at Scarves Tech, Uh, not Scarves F1 anymore because I cover other categories, and yeah. one term is a trademark. Um, and scarvestech.com uh, was my blog. I don't update it as much as I used to. Um, and then you can find me in uh, Autosport Magazine, Autosprint Magazine, Race Tech Magazine, and all over the place. So um, just look for the word scarves. And you do look remarkably like your Twitter photo as well. So that's good yes, news. Yes, I do need to put a beard on the Twitter photo <laughs> at the moment. Though, but um, yeah, that, that's, I can do that over the winter. It's dignified like a lion. Now, if you don't mind, I've got to find out where these other mugs are found on Twitter. Summers, summers.co.uk. Yeah, summersf1.co.uk and summersf1 on the Twitters. Ken, the most underfollowed F1 pundit on the internet. Where can people find you? Well, um, I'm at... Uh... Uh, on the Twitters at Vortex Modio, 
And I have four followers, and I'm really proud of that. And that's just all I need, frankly. Let's get that up to six. Remember, you cannot hear his accent on Twitter. Confirmed. You cannot hear his accent on Twitter. Matt Trumpets, you sell stuff. I do sell stuff. You can find me at MattPT55 on the Twitter. And, of course, you can always go and buy my wife's not entirely naughty books. Amanda Weaver on the nearest Amazon outlet to you. You can find the embed codes to Matt's wife's books on SpannersReady.com. That's where I recommend you go and follow me at SpannersReady. All I want is to have more Twitter followers than Chris Stevens. Come on, help me out. I don't even have an underscore in my Twitter handle. Until next time, wounds heal, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. This has been Mr. Apex Tech Time. Well done, Summer's good going. We're in serious danger of uh, seeming legit there, pal. <laughs> I don't know about that, mate. Um, you missed comment of the week. Oh, my gosh, I always do that. Comment of the week. I didn't forget about comment of the week. Paul Wright asked, is there any chance they could introduce extra flanges? Paul Wright, I am on to you. Comment of the week. Was that the one, Matt? No. <laughs> do you want to do yours? It was It was spanners. Get Summers to say upwash vortices and flow structures. Quick. I, I can do it for him. Upwash vortices and structures. Oh, no. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.